Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. If you're new today, my name's Chad. I'm just so happy to see you. And we have family right now meeting out at Stone Canyon. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them into our study of God's Word here today. Well, this past Saturday was a huge day for our family. Pretty big day, maybe a milestone, you might say. Our daughter, Addie, took her very first steps. And so we were excited to see her walk for the very first time. Thank you. We were more excited than that, but yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. And so she just took a few steps and she fell down, kind of stumbled around, but immediately Alice and I were just like, get our phones, you know, we need to film this. And we sent it to grandparents, we put it up on social media. But as I'm watching Addie walk for the first time, I thought, you know, everything's going to change now. Nothing's ever going to be the same because now that she started walking, there's no turning back. And that's the way it was for my son, Alex. He's three and a half years older than Addie. And I'll never forget when he finally learned to walk. I mean, he never sat still again. He was always on the move. And I remember... Uh, when he just started to learn to walk and kind of run a little bit, we went to a Kohl's department store late one night. It was around Christmas time, and Allison wanted to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. And so I said, you go do your shopping, I'll watch Alex. And we'd kind of been cooped up in the car all day. So I thought, I'm just going to let Alex play and run and have a good time. So he was running between aisles and around uh, racks of clothes and just having a blast. There weren't a whole lot of people in the store. Like I said, it was late. So I pulled out my phone, and I filmed him just running around the store having fun. And let me show you these clips real fast. I'm not sure if you can tell from those clips, but he almost hit a lady in the back as he ran past her. And then this other lady was like, you be careful, don't hurt yourself. They're probably thinking, what a bad dad to let him run around like that. But we had fun until Alex almost ran right into this worker at Kohl's. She was this elderly lady, and she kind of had this look like she could be really mean. And Alex almost ran right into her, and immediately I grabbed him and I apologized. I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. He's been cooped up in the car all day. I just want to let him run around a little bit. And she looked at me and she said, oh, honey, don't worry about it. Let him have fun. It's not like he's in church or anything. <laughs> now, she didn't know I was a preacher. She didn't know I was a Christian, for that matter. She didn't know me from Adam. But let him have fun. Let him have fun. It's not like he's in church or anything. And that got me thinking, where did this idea originate that church is the opposite of fun? For a lot of people, when they think of the church, what first comes to mind is something boring, stale, kind of dead, lifeless. That's what a lot of people think of when they think about the church. But I'm convinced that's not the reputation Jesus had. And I don't think that's the reputation Jesus intended his followers to have as well. See, I'm not sure what comes to mind when you think of the church, but let me let you know what comes to my mind. When I think of the church, and hear me out here, when I think of the church, I picture a party. And by party, I mean celebration. Hang with me. A celebration where because of the resurrection of Jesus, the joy of heaven invades the sadness of earth. A party, an eternal party that God is throwing, where the joy of heaven invades the sadness of our lives, the sadness of the earth. So you guys know this, the heart of our world is sick. 
If you were to put a stethoscope on the heart of any nation on the face of the planet, what you would find, what you would hear, is an irregular heartbeat. Just turn on the news, get on social media, listen to what your neighbors are saying, listen to what your kids and grandkids are experiencing in school. The heart of our world is sick. And that's the whole reason why Jesus came. Jesus came to heal the sickness that had been caused by sin. He came so that the joy of heaven could invade the sadness of earth. Through Jesus, we can experience healing, restoration, meaning, purpose, and hope. And I think that's how people should see the church, should see us. In John 15, 11, Jesus is speaking to his followers, and listen to what he says. He says, I have told you these things. In other words, I've taught you all this stuff. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Jesus told his followers, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the joy that I have given you, and I want you to give it to others. I want, to, I want you to take the joy that I've multiplied in you, and I want you to multiply it in others. In other words, through our lives, the joy of heaven should invade the sadness of earth. Jesus wants us to take the joy he's multiplied in us and multiply it in others. And the tool that Jesus has given us to do this, love. He taught us that the world would be drawn to us because of our love for him and our love for others. But I think the reason why some people get the wrong impression of the church today is because many churches have lost sight of what's most important. Many churches have lost sight of why they were placed here in the first place. And that's why five weeks ago here at First Church, we launched a new mission statement for our church. And our mission statement is easy to remember. It's simple. It's just five words, two phrases. You guys know it by now. Say it out loud with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Love Jesus. Love like Jesus. It's simple. It's easy to remember. But most importantly... It realigns our church around what's most important to God. Because every week in this series, we've been referencing Matthew chapter 22. When Jesus is asked the question, what's most important to God? Out of all of God's commandments, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all of your mind. That is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says all of God's law and all the prophets... They hang on those two commandments, those two statements, those two phrases. So our mission, love Jesus, love like Jesus. That's what life is all about. And I believe that when we do that, it'll change the world, it'll change our communities, it'll change the 918. So that's our mission statement. And our vision is to unleash a revolution of love. Because we believe with all of our hearts that First Church has been placed here at this point in history, at this point in time, to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. And we've come up with four expressions that explain how we're going to do that. And these four expressions, well, they're based on the four primary relationships that are emphasized in Scripture. And so our first expression says we relentlessly pursue God. And we've already talked about how before we can change the world with God's love, we've got to let God's love change us. Our second expression says we sacrificially serve our families, meaning a revolution of love starts in our homes and then we take it out to our communities. Our third expression says we intentionally invest in the next generation and our kids and grandkids so they will grow up to know our God. 
And then today, we're going to look at our last expression as we conclude this series, which says, we generously extend hope to everyone. And by everyone, we mean everyone. And we believe that when these four expressions become our DNA as a church, we will be a dangerous church that poses a very real and powerful threat to the status quo of our culture, to the norm. And so we want to be a church that changes lives by loving Jesus and loving like Jesus. And so we're going to unpack our fourth expression today, which I just mentioned. And again, it says, we generously extend hope to everyone. And like I said, when we say everyone, we mean just that. We mean everyone. I had to be gone a few days last week, or actually two weeks ago, because I was asked to speak at commencement at Kentucky Christian University, which is a pretty big honor, and I was excited that they asked me to come and speak for their graduation ceremonies. And so I had a great time, and it was nice speaking for the college, but also I got to see some family because I got to go back home, and it was just a great few days. But I wanted Allison and the kids to come with me, and they couldn't. Alex had some stuff going on at preschool, and Allison had already uh, had some prior obligations that she couldn't get out of, and so they stayed back here in Oklahoma, and I went and spoke, spoke at commencement. And so I miss them, like I always do anytime I'm away from them. But anytime I'm away from them, take a trip and I'm away from them, I always buy them gifts and bring them back something. So since I was in Kentucky, I bought them back Kentucky gifts, and I brought each of them back a shirt that said UK on it, the University of, of Kentucky. And so for Allison, I brought her back this t-shirt it says, we are UK, and it says Kentucky at the bottom. Now, I can't really say it like that, we are UK. I'm used to going to ball games there. We are UK! I know you guys don't care, but that's how you say it. You know, you just can't say we are UK. Anyway, bought her this shirt, and then I brought back Alex this shirt, which just has a simple UK on it, but he needs some UK uh, clothing because he is growing like a weed, and he's outgrowing everything he has that says UK on it, so I brought him that shirt, but this was the sweetest. I brought Addie back this shirt, and it just says love, has a wildcat on it with UK. I mean, isn't that just sweet? I mean, you guys want one for your kids and grandkids, don't you? I know, but I brought that back for her. It was funny, though, when I got home and I saw the kids, I was like, hey, I brought you back shirts from Kentucky, and Alex looked at me, and he goes, even me? As if, you know, he wouldn't get one, as if I would leave him out, bring back mommy one and daddy one and not him. He goes, even me? And it's like, yeah, buddy, even you, you're not going to get left out. And you know, I think that's the question that a lot of people in our culture today are asking when they hear about Jesus, when they hear about the gospel. You know, those of us who grew up in church, when we talk about how God loves everybody and no sin is too big for Jesus to forgive, and we talk about how Jesus changes and transforms lives, we hear that we're like, yeah, we've known that our entire lives. We've heard that over and over again. That's not a surprise to us. But there are a lot of people in our culture today that when they hear that, they say, the gospel's even for me? Chad, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my sin. You don't know what's been done to me. God loves somebody like me. And that's why we're here, to let everyone know that yes, God loves even you. No matter who you are, no matter what your background may be, it doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your social background, your economic status, your past sins or mistakes, your gender, your family heritage, or whatever else. God loves you. And Jesus died for you. There's hope for everyone. And we're here to let the world know that because a lot of people have trouble buying that, a lot of people have trouble believing it, and some people have never heard it. The gospel is for everyone. 
So we want to be a church that unleashes that revolution of love. Now, I brought back T-shirts for my family from Kentucky. And I didn't want to leave you guys out because, again, this is for everyone, right? So I have T-shirts for you guys today as well. Now, they don't say Kentucky on them. I know you're disappointed. But they have the state of Oklahoma on them. And inside the state of Oklahoma, it says, love Jesus, love like Jesus. And this is for real. Everybody who leaves today gets one of these T-shirts. This is our gift. It's not just for me. It's from the church. But this is our gift to you. And we want everyone to take one as a gift today. By the way, today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the birthday, the anniversary of the church. So we're celebrating the church today, and we want you to take this shirt as a gift, but also as a reminder of why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. On the back of the shirt, it's got our first church logo. So we had these specially made up for you guys. So on the way out the door today, take one, but wear it proudly and wear it remembering that's what we're here to do, to love Jesus and to love like Jesus. Because Jesus is for everyone, regardless of someone's race, race, ethnicity, social background, economic status, past sins or mistakes, gender, family heritage, whatever. Jesus is for everyone. And today we're going to look at a woman in the Bible that had trouble believing that at first. But by the end of our passage, she learned that Jesus loved even her. So if you have your Bible, it's going to turn me to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to study today. And we're going to be at verse 36. And in verse 36, we find out that Jesus has been invited to attend a party, a party that's being thrown by a very wealthy man named Simon. And Simon isn't just wealthy. Simon is also a Pharisee, meaning he is a religious leader. But I'm convinced that the reason why Simon invited Jesus over to his house wasn't to honor Jesus. Simon invited Jesus over to embarrass him, to shame him. And this is why I think so. Because showing proper hospitality to a guest in this culture was extremely important. If you were a person of noble character, if you were a respected person in the community, when you had a guest over, there were certain things that you always did. And not doing that was a sign of disgrace. So what you would do anytime you'd have a guest over is, first of all, you would greet that guest at the door, typically with a kiss. Now, I know that sounds a little odd to us. If I come over to your house this afternoon, don't kiss me when I walk through your front door, okay? I don't want you to do that. We can shake hands or hug, but, you know, no kisses. But in this day and age, it's very common. Somebody comes over to your house, you greet them with a customary kiss. And we have probably seen this happen even today in other cultures outside of ours. That was typical, a kiss on one cheek, maybe on both cheeks. And then after you greeted one another with a kiss, then you would be brought into the center room of the house where there was a great banquet table and you would have your feet washed right off the bat. Because in this day and age, the primary mode of transportation was walking, and so you walked on dirt roads, clay roads, your feet got nasty, your feet got dirty, and so you would wash your feet before you would have your meal. And then if you were visiting a home of some means that had some money, wealth, typically what they would do is they would then pour some type of fragrance or perfume on your legs, on your feet, so that they wouldn't stink anymore to cover up the smell. That was typical, normal Jewish hospitality. But Jesus rings Simon's doorbell, there's no customary kiss. Jesus goes into the great room and there's no one there to wash his feet. And so that means there's definitely no one there to put some type of fragrance or perfume on his feet and legs. It's obvious what's going on here. Jesus grew up in this culture and Jesus was a pretty smart guy. It didn't take him long to figure out what was going on. He's not there to be honored. He's there to be embarrassed. He knows that Simon has some type of agenda. And yet what's interesting to me is that Jesus goes on in the house anyway. Jesus 
participates in the meal anyway. Even though Jesus knows that he's probably walking into a hostile environment, he attends the party anyway. And I think there's a reason for this. Because Jesus was always willing to go where grace was needed. He didn't let awkwardness, opposition, or even an uncomfortable situation keep him from going where grace was needed. And I think the same should be true of us as his followers. We're called to go where grace is needed. Dangerous churches are full of people who take dangerous risks for Jesus. But dead churches are full of people who never take dangerous risks for Jesus. See, when most people think of the church, they think of a place where Christians gather and meet like a building, or they think of a service that a church may host or a program that a church may offer. But that's not how the Bible defines the church. The Bible defines the church as a people who live on mission, a people who live as missionaries in their daily lives for the sake of Jesus. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the Great Commission, Jesus says, Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations. Now I want you to remember, Jesus isn't just saying this to a certain group of people. He's saying this to all of his followers. This isn't just for those who want to go into full-time ministry. This, is, this statement was made for all of his followers. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And what's interesting is that Greek word go that Jesus uses is in the ongoing tense, meaning as you go, make disciples. In other words, as you go, as you live your daily lives, as you go to work, as you spend time with your families, as you enjoy your hobbies, as you live life, whatever you're doing, make disciples. I love what Jamie Snyder says about this passage. Jamie's a good friend of mine. He preaches at Lakeside Christian Church, and he's written several books. And in his book, Thou Shall, he writes this about the word go and the Great Commission. Pay careful attention to what he says. In terms of the Great Commission, I think many people think about going primarily as an event. Perhaps the event is a packed stadium where the gospel is preached. Perhaps the event is a spring break mission trip to a third world country, or a good old-fashioned tent revival, or a special door-to-door initiative in your community the weekend before Easter. Such events certainly play a role in going, and yet honestly, they play a small part because they are isolated. When Jesus gave the instruction to go, he was not thinking in terms of events. He was thinking about our lifestyle. Go could better be understood in this way, as you are going. Viewing the go command from this perspective is a game changer, and more so a life changer. Not just for you, but for others. When go is viewed as a daily mission, not a scheduled event or activity, a sense of awareness is heightened and opportunity abounds. When Jesus says go, he's not talking about a one-time event or just a mission trip or going down and doing a service project. That's not what he's talking about, though those are part of going. What he means is in your daily lives, multiply in others the joy he's multiplied in you. The church was never supposed to be confined to four walls. We were called, we are called to go where grace is needed. And I have the opportunity to have lunch or breakfast with a lot of different ministers and preachers. And as I meet with these different preachers, I'll ask them the same question, especially if I don't know them that well. I'll be like, how are things going at your church? I mean, just a good conversation starter. And you know what the most popular answer I get is? Well, we're holding our own. And I always wonder what they mean by that. We're holding our own. As if to say, we're not really growing or we're not really doing anything, but we're keeping everybody that we have happy. 
We're holding our own. God doesn't call the church to hold our own. God calls the church to unleash a revolution of his love on this world. We go where grace is needed. And sometimes that's tough. Sometimes that's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's not easy. But that's what Jesus asked us to do. 51% of churches last year did not bring one new convert to Christ in America. 51% of churches in America did not bring one new convert to Christ. They're still existing in their meeting, but over half of churches aren't bringing anybody new to the faith. Jesus enters this house in Luke chapter 7, and he knew that it wasn't going to be the greatest of situations, but he went anyway. And he was brought into this larger room where there was a banquet table, and that's where they were going to have their meal. And what's interesting is in large homes, especially homes where people had some wealth, you wouldn't just have room in this center area, this great room we might call it for a table where the people could sit around and eat. There would also be an extended space where people from the community, locals, common people, could walk in and observe the meal that was taking place. Now, I know that sounds a little odd to us, but this was typical. Wealthy people wanted to show off. Off their wealth prestigious people wanted to show off their wealth and so they would leave the doors of their home open so people from the streets could just walk in and observe what was taking place and listen in on the conversations and people did this common people would walk in off the street just to get a glimpse of what the elite were talking about what the rich and famous were doing now again I know that sounds kind of odd to us and we'd probably think why would people do that why would people just walk in and not participate in the meal but just observe what's going on just watch what the rich and famous are doing. I only have to put one picture up on the screen for you guys to know that our culture is not that far removed from the first century. Look at this picture. How many people watch the Kardashians? Now, I'm not endorsing this show. In fact, in order to find a picture to put up here, it took me a long time because most of their advertisements, they're not appropriate for church. But I finally found one that was okay to put up to show in church. And millions of people watch the Kardashians, not because they do anything significant for our culture, not because they've made any difference in people's lives, any difference of, like I said, of any importance in people's lives, just because they're rich. Just because they're famous, people watch them. They watch their every move. And I was talking to a young guy in his 20s just the other day, and he told me that when history looks back on this time period, that the Kardashians will be known as the most influential people of our time. And I laughed at him. I said, no, there's no way. And he said, seriously, if they do anything, it becomes popular. People watch them. Now, you may argue with that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you ever watch their show because you might be embarrassed. And it's not just them. There are other reality shows where we love to watch wealthy people, rich people. We like to get a glimpse into their lives. That's why people follow TMZ and they get magazines in stores like People Magazine that talk about what the rich and famous are doing. We like to watch and observe what the rich and famous are doing. This isn't anything new. In this day and age, they didn't have TV and they didn't have TMZ. <laughs> But they would, people from the streets would walk in and just stand in the back against the back wall and watch an eavesdrop on the rich and the famous. So that's what was going on this day. And as there's a group gathered around the table watching, observing what Simon and his guests are doing, we find out in Luke chapter 7 that there's a prostitute in that group, a woman with a sinful past. Now on this day, you are typically a prostitute for one of two reasons. Either your husband had died and this was the only way that you could support yourself or your parents had sold you into this lifestyle in order to pay off a family debt. 
You may not want it to be a prostitute, it's just what happened. But even though you may not have chose this profession, people look down upon you as you can imagine. This was one of the most deplorable and despicable occupations in the ancient world. And I'm not shocked that there's a prostitute observing what's going on that day. What shocks me is that she moves from the back wall to center stage. She moves from the back wall to the center of the room. Let's read and see what happens. Luke 7, verse 37. It says, when a woman who had lived a sinful life, sinful life in that town, now that's Luke's polite way of saying she's a prostitute. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. Now, a couple things I want to mention. First of all, this alabaster jar, this alabaster jar was a small jar about the size of a Coke can, had a long neck on it, and it was worth about a year's wages. This is an expensive item. And then it says that she's weeping. And when you look in the Greek, the word that's used for weeping actually means like a flood of tears, like heavy rainfall. So she's not just crying a little bit. She is crying profusely. Let's read on and see what happens. So she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus visits Simon's house. Simon doesn't greet him with a kiss, but this woman kisses Jesus' feet. Simon doesn't have anyone wash Jesus' feet, but this woman is washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Simon doesn't have any perfume or fragrance to give to Jesus, but this woman gives up probably her most prized possession in order to honor Jesus. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think this is this woman's first encounter with Jesus. I think she's either had an encounter with him before or she's at least heard him teach before. Because women in this day and age, they did not approach men like this, especially a woman with her background. Women could be arrested for approaching a man like this. They could even be stoned for approaching a man like this, especially a woman with her background. But she approaches Jesus knowing she'll be welcomed in his presence. She'll be accepted in his presence. I think she's met Jesus before, or she's at least heard him teach. And the Bible says that as she approaches him, she begins to cry. Now, why is she crying? Some scholars think she's crying because she's just overwhelmed with guilt, the guilt of her past. Could be, but I think it could be something else. I don't know. But if, have you ever been so happy that you cried? Guys, it's, it's hard for me to watch a baptism without crying. To see the power of that moment when Jesus transforms someone's life, it's hard for me to watch a baptism and not cry. And I'm not crying because I'm sad crying because I'm happy. I cried at the birth of both of my children. I was a blubbering mess when I saw those blobs of life that came out of my wife, you know? I mean, I was a blubbering mess. I wasn't sad. I was happy. You ever been so happy you cried? I wonder if that's not what's going on in this passage. Because Jesus doesn't turn her away. Most men in her day, unless they wanted to use her, would have sent her away, would have been disgusted by her. Not Jesus. Jesus accepts her. And I think she's so happy that Jesus accepts her that she can't help but cry. See, most men in this day, they would have treated her, they would have reacted to her as Simon reacted. If you jump on down to verse 39 of Luke chapter 7, it says, When the Pharisee, this is Simon, who had invited him, saw this, 
he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, in other words, if he was truly a man of God, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Simon says, if Jesus was really the man he's supposed to be, the man he claims to be a man of God, there's no way he would let a woman like this near him. What's going on doesn't make sense in terms of the religious structures that Simon's used to. Simon thinks a true man of God would never allow something like this to happen. But here's the thing. Simon doesn't know God near as well as he thinks he does. And Jesus, knowing what Simon's thinking, knowing what's going on in Simon's heart, he decides to teach Simon a little lesson. He wants Simon to know that both he and this woman are in the same boat, that they're both in desperate need of God's forgiveness. Simon might act like he's got his life all together, but he doesn't. Jesus is going to teach Simon that owning your mistakes is better than faking perfection. And so Jesus says to Simon in verse 44 of Luke chapter 7, do you see this woman? Now isn't that kind of an odd question? Of course Simon sees her. Everybody in the room sees her. A prostitute has just walked up to a rabbi and started to wash his feet and anoint his feet. Of course he sees her. And Luke's already told us that Simon's thinking, how dare Jesus allow a woman like that to touch him? So why does Jesus ask the question, do you see this woman? Because even though Simon had noticed her, he hadn't made eye contact with her yet. I like how the New Living Translation translates Jesus' words to Simon. It says that Jesus says to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. See, when Simon looked at this woman, all he saw was her sin. All he saw was her past. All he saw was her reputation. And Jesus wanted Simon to see her he wants Simon to see this woman for who God created her to be. Guys, we follow a Savior who valued people, all people. He looked past people's mistakes. He didn't see their financial portfolio or their social status or their family pedigree or their race. He didn't see their gender. When Jesus saw people, he saw them as children of God who were lost hurting and needed rescue, who needed hope. He didn't ignore anyone. He didn't use or abuse anyone. He didn't act like he was better than anyone. He didn't see people as a means to an end. He saw people as those created in the image of his Father. And as his followers, he expects the same from us. We are to be a people who see others for who God created them to be. Because we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's standard. We're all in the same boat. We're all in need of God's forgiveness. So we don't measure the distance between God and others. No, we show people how Jesus can bridge the distance. But Simon... Even though he claimed to be a religious guy, even though he claimed to be a follower of God, even a teacher of God's law, he somehow missed this. He didn't understand or appreciate what was taking place in this moment because he had taken God's grace for granted. And that's why Jesus calls Simon out and he says in verse 47, her many sins, speaking of this woman, speaking of this prostitute, her many sins have been forgiven for she loves much, she loves me much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. 
In other words, Simon, if you don't think you need God's forgiveness, then you're not going to experience it. You're not going to receive it. This woman knows she needs God's forgiveness. So she's going to be invited to God's party. Unfortunately, some people have been in church for so long that they have forgotten their own personal need for God's grace. And when we ignore our own need for God's grace, we ignore everyone else around us in need of God's grace. Let me say that again. When we ignore our own need for God's grace, we ignore everyone else around us in need of God's grace. I have a friend who preached for a while at a little small country church, and they had this thing called opening exercises. Anybody remember opening exercises? Did you have those years ago? Maybe the churches you attended? Opening exercises, they had Sunday school and they had church. Before Sunday school, they'd have opening exercises, and basically everybody met together and they sang a song or two, and then maybe read a scripture, had a prayer. It was to get everybody warmed up, I guess. It was the preview before you got to Sunday school and church. And so this church still had opening exercises. And one day, my buddy, he was on his way to the church, and he was going to make it in time for opening exercises. But as he drove past this house, he noticed there's a man sitting on the front porch. And my buddy, he had talked to this guy before. He'd been in his home before. And every single Sunday when he drove past uh, that house, he prayed for that man because he knew that man needed Jesus. And yet every Sunday morning, the man slept in. He never came to church. But that Sunday morning as he passed by, the man is sitting on his front porch, and he made eye contact with my buddy as he drove past. And my buddy thought in that moment, I just need to stop. And so he pulled off, he went up to the front porch, he had a conversation with the guy, and he invited him to come to, come to church with him. And the man on the front porch said, not today, I'm not wearing the right clothes. And my buddy said, you don't need to change, wear what you're wearing, come on. He said, no, no, not today, but I make you a promise, I give you my word. I'll be ready next Sunday, you stop by and pick me up, I'll come next Sunday. And so my friend was excited. He got in his car. He drove on to church. He was pumped that he had just had that conversation with this guy because that guy never said before that he would come to church. And he got to the building, and he walked in, and he had missed opening exercises. Everybody's walking into their Sunday school classes. And as they were walking into their Sunday school classes, one of the elders called him aside. He said, you're late. Where were you? And my buddy went through and explained what had just happened. He was so excited and so pumped, and he figured the elder would be very forgiving. <laughs> and the elder looked at him and said, don't be late again. And you wonder why that guy hadn't been to church. I love how this passage ends. Verse 50 says, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In other words, go now and live a full life. Go now and live in God's peace. Celebrate Him. See, when everyone else was judging this woman, intentionally ignoring her, when everyone else was repulsed by her, Jesus loved her, and Jesus gave her hope. And guys, that's why we're here. That's why First Church exists. We are a people who extend hope on a world that is in desperate need of it. That's why I love our final exp expression. We generously extend hope to everyone. Because we believe Jesus has the power to rewrite anyone's story. We are surrounded by people who are hurting. We encounter people every single day who are broken. People who are lost and wondering. People who lay their heads down at night and wonder, there's got to be more to this life that I'm living. And we have the answer for them. We have purpose. We have meaning. We have hope. Because we have Jesus. And that's why... I'm saving the challenge that goes along with this expression to the very end. Remember, which, with each of these expressions, we have a challenge. 
And I'm saving the challenge to the very end, and here it is. Our challenge that goes along with this expression is this. We want 100% of our first church family to introduce at least one friend to Jesus every single year. And by introduce someone to Jesus, we don't mean just invite them to church. That's good. Do, do that. And we also don't mean just tell them about Jesus. We want you to do that too. But we mean we want you to be involved in bringing someone to Jesus, bringing someone to saving faith, bringing someone to the point where they want to be baptized into Christ. We want you to be involved in bringing at least one friend to Jesus every single year. Because guys, the Great Commission was not just for a select few. It is for all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And we all know people who are hurting, who are broken, who need what we have. And so let me ask, who is it in your life that you haven't made eye contact with yet, that you've been ignoring? Because here's the thing, no one can save everyone, but everyone can save someone. Everyone can reach someone. When I was little, between the ages of two and four, my family lived in Paintsville, Kentucky, a little small community. My dad was transferred there because of his job. And because it was a small community, we attended a small church. That's all they had in that community were small churches. And it was fine. The people there were very loving and full of grace and kind. But I was the only kid my age. Like I said, I was there from ages two, three, and four. And I was the only kid my age. All the other kids were older. They were like kindergarten, first grade, or, or older. And so uh, there was always a kid's table. Anytime we would have a fellowship meal or a potluck or something, it was a kid's table. It only had like six seats at it. And normally it wasn't full, but that's where the kids would sit. It was close enough where the parents could keep an eye on us, and we could just kind of eat there. And I remember one Sunday night after church, they had a dessert social or something. I forget what they were celebrating, but they had cake and punch. And everybody was supposed to go down to the fellowship hall and have cake and punch. And when we walked in, the kid's table was already set up, and they had little pieces of cake kid size pieces of cake already cut for us sitting there with our punch and special cups so that we wouldn't have to wait the kids could just go ahead and start and then there was a table for the adults to pick up their pieces of cake which were a lot bigger you know a lot bigger and they had adult cups and all that kind of stuff for their punch and the adults could pick their own piece and then go to their tables so I walked in and for some reason I was a little late I'm not sure why I was late again I was probably like four at the time but I came in there's one seat left that night at the kids table and I went up and I grabbed the chair and when I grabbed the chair to sit down one of the older boys sitting there put his foot up in the chair and said that seat's taken I was like by who and he goes by my feet I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'm, little, I'm four years old. I didn't want to fight with these big kids. I was like, okay, so I went over to grab my plate of cake, and I was going to go stand up against the wall and eat my cake. I know you guys are feeling sorry for me, right? Little poor Chad. I went and I was going to grab my cake, and I reached for my plate, and when I did, that same kid took his hand and grabbed the cake and shoved the whole piece in his mouth. And with his mouth full, he said, that's mine too. I'll never forget it. I was scarred for life. No, not really, but I'll never forget it. And I, don't know, I didn't know what to do. So I went over to the wall where I was going to go stand and eat my cake. And I just leaned up against the wall. I crossed bars, put my head down. I probably cried. And about that time, I felt a shadow come over me. And I looked up. And it was my dad. He had watched the whole thing play out. And my dad picked me up. He said, Chad, what happened? He had seen it already, but he knew what happened. But he said, Chad, what happened? And I went through and I told him the whole story, sobbing as I did. And then I said to him, there's not a seat for me. And my dad said, oh, yes, there is. 
I saved a seat for you at my table. And he carried me over to the table where he and mom were sitting, and he put me on his lap, and he grabbed me a, a big piece of cake. Not a little kid piece of cake. He grabbed me a big piece of cake. And I was like, is all this mine? He said, tonight it's yours. And so I devoured this huge piece of cake. And I remember as I'm eating my cake, I looked over at the kid's table, and they're just all sitting there with their mouths wide open. You know, they just couldn't believe what they were witnessing. And I remember my dad whispered in my ear, and he said, no matter what happens, you'll always have a place at my table. Guys, that's the message that God wants the 918 to hear. There are people who've been rejected by this world who are hurting. There are people like this woman in Luke chapter 7 that feel like garbage because that's the way the world has made them feel. That's the way their sin makes them feel. And we have a message of hope. And they're waiting on us to get out there and say, there is a seat for you, there is a place for you around God's table. You are valuable, you are worthwhile, you are loved because you are a child of God and He has a purpose for your life. It's time that we got out and we let the joy of heaven invade the sadness of people's lives by unleashing God's love. Guys, our vision series might be over but the vision isn't. We're only just beginning. And I can't wait to see what God has in store for First Church. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the love that you've lavished upon us. But Father, we don't want to keep that love to ourselves. We want to take it out to the world because we encounter people every single day, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family members who need you. And so, Father, may we go out by showing, you how much we, showing them how much we love you and then loving like your son, may we transform their lives through your son's gospel. Father, we just lift you on high. You are the head of this church. Lead us, guide us, take us where we need to go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.